Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, hello and welcome to Cross Section, uh, where we bring together conversations on faith and culture and all that's going on in the news. And um, this is actually going to be our last episode of the year. It is Thursday, the 7th of December, if you're listening in, just so you know where we're sitting in the news context. But we're going to do a bit of a review of the year, some of the bigger stories, some of the stories that are continuing to press in and what has been catching our attention. I am joined by our regulars, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Alicia and Danny, both with me. Where are you both uh, sitting today, folks? I am at home in South London. And Alicia, where are you? I am in the resource centre of the Evangelical Alliance in King's Cross. So well briefed to keep the Batman happy, is that how we have to call this? Brilliant. And I am in Northern Ireland. Looking forward to seeing some of you next week in London. So we are back. This is the last show. And we're talking about some of the big stories. So we're going to do that across four categories. A big international story, a big cultural story, a domestic or political story, and a Christian story. I nearly forgot what the fourth category was. So, Danny, you're going to lead us off on the big international story. What are we talking about in terms of our review? Well, I think I don't I don't think we can look beyond the conflict in Israel and Gaza that began with the terrorist attacks on September uh, on the 7th of October um, and the, the war that has dominated since then. Uh, it's not been the only international story, but I think it's been by far the most significant. Um, I think the repercussions in terms of the region, but also in terms of domestic politics has been really significant. Uh, we've seen protest marches, we've seen increased anti-Semitism in the UK as a result of that. Um, I think it has shifted some of the conversation in terms of the international sphere. Um, it's brought up questions again about how can we have lasting peace in the region? It's the the situation that has rumbled on for decades, um, but questions about how have we not been able to reach a point where we can have some form of uh, longer term peaceful solution. And I think this has really raised the stakes for that, that I think has uh, dominated our international news this year. Okay, and I think, Alyssa, I don't think you have a rival story to that, but but correct me if I'm wrong. Are we all going to agree this is the story? 100%. It's the story of the year. Yeah, it's it's probably a little unusual. I'm going to ask you for a minute for your key takeaway on that, because we, we obviously started the year talking a lot more about Ukraine and another conflict. And in a sense, that's kind of drop down the news agenda and there's something of a stalemate and things are a bit stuck there. But the Israel-Palestine uh, situation, I mean, what what is your takeaway on that, Alicia? What has struck you most in that story? I guess as time has gone on, how um, sympathy for what took place on the 7th of October seems to be drifting from people's minds, media rhetoric, media engagement on the story in terms of is Israel right to respond with uh, the same level of force in, in addressing um, what was a terrorist attack? I guess internally, particularly within Christian circles, thinking about how does the teachings of Christ inform our engagement on international affairs? And we, of course, had a previous episode talking about just will theory and its imperfect application in this moment, but more of a general conversation about what would it mean or what would the approach be if there was to love your neighbor 
or turn the other cheek? What if that was Israel's response? And it's interesting that Thomas Friedman from the New York Times comes out with this fascinating piece where he was saying, rather than Israel go to war with Hamas and go for a military response, what if on day one or within week one, its initial response was a permanent ceasefire, a withdrawal from Gaza? Uh, in exchange that Hamas would return all hostages and that they wouldn't be a, a, any prisoner return. What if its response was more diplomatic and less of military? What would happen? And I observe that and think the international community wouldn't really see that as a strength in response. They would see that as weakness. Uh, they would see that as game playing, as manipulation. So I think I've just been reflecting on um, how do we apply in practice the teachings of Christ in this moment, particularly around a conflict that also has biblical references uh, to it and is very has strong feelings within the church. Really helpful. And I think one of the things that's definitely struck me is the is the power of stories and lenses. So um, again, we don't know often what has happened on the ground in in the conflict. And yet uh this week in particular we've been reading more about the violence against women that was committed on the 7th of October and how this um I believe and trust women in the me too movement is struggling to cope with what to do with the violence perpetrated against Israeli women by Hamas even with the kind of video evidence and some of the stuff coming because it was so shaped by narratives and that occurs on both sides so don't that 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 one's the presenting one this week but for so many Christians that I speak to they're like Israel is almost right no matter what it does. Um, and I've had some pretty interesting conversations with people, even if you push back at all and say, but hold on, maybe now they're going too far in where they are, like the the level of response, the the what is happening now. Um, it feels like we're on the boundaries and perhaps over some of the, like what's legitimate in terms of international law. Uh, so I think that and the rise of anti-Semitism, but the shaping stories, the difference between generations in response to this um, uh, has been really striking to me how even when the hostages and even with Hamas and a terrorist organization, even that some people think is somehow justifiable. And I'm finding some of those narratives so difficult almost to navigate how shaped people are in this moment. Danny, you started us in this. I know you want to come back yeah. in before we move on. <laughs> well, I think that I think some of what you've just said about the kind of baked in assumptions and positions that people hold has been really challenging on both sides. The the unwillingness to deal with the nuance and the complexity and the fact that the people that you might classically or traditionally support actually can also be guilty of heinous wrongs in a situation. So I think the need to navigate complexity is one of the things that stood out to me on this, whether that's in terms of the geopolitics of the situation, whether that's the dynamics of leadership and dealing with states and terrorist organizations and how they interact whether it's the theological aspects of it um, or the domestic consequences of how free speech play out and how the right to protest the right to assemble the right to speak also requires questions about how do we deal with anti-semitism and inciting violence on our streets so I think we just need to be able to embrace the complexity and the nuance of difficult situations much more than we have been able to in the last few months. Uh, Danny, you stole a word I'd written down, nuance on this one, I do think, uh, particularly theologically, biblically, as we respond, as Alicia was saying, we're looking at teachings of Jesus, we're looking at the Old Testament, we're trying to hold a number of different texts together that might take us in different directions and actually 
bring a nuanced approach that can say Israel does the right defend itself, I think. I also think it has a position within the scheme of what God is doing. They're the called out people. But I also believe that we are engrafted in, not replacing it as Christians today. And that still all says we have to operate in particular ways in the world in which we're in. And you have to do what is right. And Israel always lost its... Um, way when it didn't do what was right. And I, I don't think some of the actions right now are meeting that criteria. So I think we can hold a number of complex and different ideas together around that. But because we have an action-packed show, that is, I'm going to have to draw a line onto the, the international stories and turn now to the cultural stories uh, where I believe you lot are all saying I'm supposed to lead on my love of all things Barbie, uh, the Barbie movie being my favorite movie of the year. And I okay. still think, um, who was trying to come in and argue with that? Alicia? Are you disagreeing? Mm -hmm. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> I still think it is um, a phenomenal movie to get us thinking about what it is to be human, what it is to be male, what it is to be female in this world, challenging some stereotypes, playing, riffing a little bit of the court jester. That's what I like about it. It dabbles in a bit of amateur philosophy for sure. But I actually think it does raise profound and interesting questions and gets people thinking about the fundamental question. That's not a surprise because I may possibly have co-written the book about what it means to be human. And I think that's the question it's playing at. That was a shameless plug. Um, Alyssa, you also think the Barbie movie was your favorite movie of the year. Not. <laughs> what did you go for? <laughs> not a chance. I think Oppenheimer is the film and soundtrack of the year. And I hope that it sweeps array of awards at next year's Oscars. Uh, so yeah, an incredible film, Christopher Nolan, epic summer film that came out that talks about the mind of uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the creation of the atomic bomb. And I guess it's that continued conversation around, and we've spoken about it on this episode, on this series about the role of artificial intelligence, public culture, technology, life, and his film when he was doing kind of the media rounds uh, following its its launch was talking about how in his own conversations with uh, AI scientists, there is this question of them thinking that actually they are currently in an Oppenheimer moment, the ability to create technology that either divides and conquers civilization uh, and what are their responsibilities in creation of AI uh, and um, the unintended consequences that it has both nationally, uh, between people in terms of technology, humanity, et cetera, et cetera. So I think Oppenheimer is a great film, one to watch, but it also touches on the cultural conversation of science, technology, and the responsibility that we have to one another. I, well, here we do agree, uh, Alicia. One, I do think it is a great movie. And secondly, I do think that AI is 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 arguably the big cultural story. Uh, we did touch upon Sam Altman and OpenAI. Uh, people may reflect back, maybe that was a storm in a teacup, though I think that was pulling at some of the underlying questions on AI. Who really does control it? How open source is it? Where does the generative AI go? And are we on the cusp or perhaps... Did we even see the beginnings of the next phase of AI in the conversations that were going on around that? Many of us use ChatGPT. That's what Altman was kind of famous for, if you like, or more publicly known for. But the big questions behind were the ethical questions and can anybody control where this goes? And we've seen a lot more questions around that in the last year. Uh, and a lot more, uh, I suppose, challenge to that and the ethical questions come out. And I think that's a space that we as Christians absolutely should be in and chatting more about. But Danny has boldly disagreed, I believe, that AI and Barbie and Oppenheimer are the big stories of the year because he is, at heart, still a Swifty. 
I am absolutely, <laughs> and not only because I haven't seen either the Barbie film or Oppenheimer. There, well, I haven't been to the, I haven't been to the cinema this year. It's like um, you've got young children, Danny. It's like I've got young children. I, I nearly had the opportunity okay. to go and see Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. Um, but my wife instead <laughs> went with my daughter to see that one. No, my story of the year on culture is Taylor Swift. Um, just as we were prepping to record this uh, podcast, Time magazine announced that she was their person of the year for 2023. Um the essay is somewhat hagiographic, uh, as is kind of the form for those things. But I'm just going to read a quote from it. It's harder to see history when you're in the middle of it, harder still to distinguish Swift's impact on the culture from her celebrity, which emits so much light it can be blinding. But something unusual is happening with Swift without a contemporary precedent. She has harnessed the power of the media, both traditional and new, to create something wholly unique, a narrative world in which her music is just one piece. In an interactive, shape-shifting story, Swift is that story's architect and hero, protagonist and narrator. The piece is long. It goes on. I think the point it's making is that she's not just a pop star. Uh, and she affects culture. She affects the economy. When her show comes to town, um, she has a significant and notable effect on the GDP of a of an area. Um, I think she creates more income than the Super Bowl does. When uh, she starts dating an NFL football player, uh, viewing figures rocket. It is weird. I'm not going to deny that. It is weird and bizarre. Odd. But and the way that she kind of tells stories laced within stories within stories and the way diff all of it interacts, both her music and her personal life, it creates this whole culture, which is not always particularly healthy. Um, but the dominance it has had on our culture, the way that it affects our society is fascinating. And I don't think I don't think we've seen all the ways that it will play out. Well, so now that I've looked up what hagio hagiographic means, like excessively flattering, Danny, that's what I want in my annual review, please. <laughs> now that I've looked that up for everybody's sake. Um, the only reason I went to see the Taylor Swift Eras Tour movie was because Ian Harbour, I think it is from Truth Over Tribe, was saying she is such a cultural icon. I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Danny, to see if you can give us, I get that you're saying she is, I still don't think I understand why, but let me go to Alicia first and see what she thinks of the Swifty uh, pitch for story of the year. Fascinating. I mean, she's what, Times Person of the Year Award. Um, she is loved, as I've learned this year, by many Christians <laughs> who are prepared to organise their lives to attend her tour. Um, I, the obsession I don't understand, and it makes me slightly weary, Beyond her artistry, she's clearly a talented artist. Her ability to span generations or age groups that engage with her music, her ability, as uh, Danny says, to influence the economy uh, of nations when she comes to town is impressive. I guess where my hesitancy and worry is, is that a crowd mentality they love you one way and then can easily pull you down the next. And I I just worry about that part of her story, that the fame, the accolade, the crowd could easily turn on her at any point. And that obsession, it, I don't know, it feels, it moves into a sphere of idolatry for me that I don't really get with her, given that she writes based on how dysfunctional her life is and chaotic it has been. 
and yet plays it through melody, um, that that isn't someone that I would hold up as a a model or a beacon to young females because it's a complex story in and of itself. So Taylor Swift, great artist, person of the year, possibly not, cultural story of the year. I have to disagree. And let me just, Danny, I'm going to give you a chance, but I mean, it does seem to me highly curated her life and and the way it's mediated to us. And I'm still, I still don't think I understand what is it in her songs, the why I get that she's big, but last 30 seconds on why before we have to move on. <laughs> um, I think there's something interesting that her story is so much about you can have it your own way. There is this kind of arc of redemption, the way she was um, like Kanye West to Kim Kardashian, the betrayal, uh, the sale of her music, the way she's re-recorded it and taken control of herself and of her life but it is highly curated I don't think she's disorganized I think she's incredibly uh, particular about how things are going even down to like the staging and the management of the tour but you have this narrative that you can do it your own way and yet you have hundreds of thousands of people millions of people trying to do it her way so there's that that contradiction and that paradox that someone's individuality and their own redemptive story potentially is something that people latch onto and just follow, potentially follow, yes, in a way that almost undermines its its very story. Well, the Eras tour continues the biggest selling, grossing the movie over a hundred million, I think, just on the movie and that alone. Then you can do a special pay-per-view. I don't know, it's just endless. She is a phenomenal, I'll certainly give you that, Danny. Um but we have to move on. So that has been the international, then the cultural. Alicia, I am coming to you with what is the top Christian story of the year from your perspective. So it's important to start with Synod and the Church of England. It's definitely been a challenging and difficult year for evangelical Anglicans. Uh, the most recent news story or most recent update is uh, going ahead with some form of a service that will bless but not marry um, same-sex couples uh, within uh, a church setting. Um, and in many ways, why this is such a, a, a poignant conversation for um, uh, Christians is one, it's the Church of England, but two, it's about that kind of cultural thinking and attitude of how do you do life alongside kind of the biblical teaching, the biblical story around identity and its wisdom that's existed for millennia and across generations. So I would say that is probably the most pressing uh, uh, Christian story that's taken place this year and will linger on into 2024. So it's definitely been a big story. We have covered it. There are articles on our website. I sat down and did an interview with uh, John Donnett, who leads CEEC, the Church of England Evangelical Council, to understand better what happened in the November boat. We have covered both the February, the July and the November. I think all three different meetings. Uh, there's probably been more in between. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so a big story. As somebody sitting in Northern Ireland, I'll say probably not the biggest story because it's the Church of England. The Church of England is so important and yet also so English and Church of England. <laughs> so, um, and we have seen the numbers and the stats and they're experiencing significant decline. And of course, this is one of the core questions is by going liberal, by, by moving in this direction, one argument is that they're going to attract more people but the reality on the ground seems very different. Anyway, lots more we could probably say on that. Danny, is that the big church story of the year from your perspective? 
I think it's significant and I think it's going to play out. I think the Church of England and what they do and say has ramifications beyond uh, their own church. So I think it is significant. But for me, I think the church story of the year has to be um, the, well, first of all, allegations, the investigations and conclusions around uh, Mike Pilarachi and sole survivor determining that he did act in a way that was abusive of people in his leadership. Um, Mike Pilarachi has since uh, resigned from leadership of sole survivor, um, and there is now a subsequent investigation into the leadership and the culture of the church. So initially it was a Church of England investigation into the safeguarding questions, um, and now it's looking at some of the wider issues involved in self-survival and his leadership. And I think I think this is the my most significant story for two primary reasons. One, for Christians, particularly in the evangelical charismatic world, but broader than that as well, um, Mike Pilavachi and Soul Survivor was really significant. Anyone up to maybe 45, maybe a little bit older, will have been influenced by Soul Survivor growing up. Over the last three decades, they've had huge influence on church and youth church culture in particular. So many people who are in church ministry, in church leadership today, would date formative Christian experiences back to the Soul Survivor Festival. So I think the, the shock of this has been huge and processing it has been really challenging for people because for many people um actually their experiences were positive and yet to think that behind that was something that was far less positive for other people um so i think that's been significant but also because it touches on wider issues of leadership and culture in the church and how we lead well and how we lead well in a way that isn't domineering, that isn't manipulative, but how can we encourage people to lead in a way that seeks to serve, um, but also seeks to grow healthy leadership in our churches and organisations? Alessia, you've obviously seen this story too. I mean, I know you put the Synod story up, but how has this kind of come onto your radar, the Pilavachi story and the wider Soul Survivor? Yeah, definitely engaged in, in it in the sense of, personally being impacted by the the soul survivor ministry i guess as a as an outsider to the church but being connected relationally to people who uh currently attend i think the part that i have observed is the challenge that christians both online uh as well as um kind of relationally how how do you how do you deal with fallout error and abuse and malpractice that's taken place over a period of time. How do you adequately deal with that, but simultaneously allow for or create space for reconciliation, forgiveness, not those who are directly impacted, but how does the ministry move forward? How do Christians move beyond this story? Because at the moment, engaging what was online when the news broke, our language it was instant cancel culture of the ministry, disregard for its impact. Everything was assumed as abusive and therefore everything that's come out of it, both those who have gone on to be leaders of different churches, et cetera, et cetera, have been impacted negatively. And I've just observed, I'm just thinking, how, how do we as the church engage with this story, hold accountability, deal with bad and malpractice, but equally create space for reconciliation and truth and forgiveness that if 
in due time someone was to repent of could be brought back into the mold. Uh, that side of it I've yet to see. Uh, but I think it's really important moving forward because otherwise there are many within scriptures we would disregard because of their behavior uh, and never believe the redemptive art could be for them when the gospel does extend that far. Yeah, I think uh, lots of good. I agree. This is probably the most significant story, or certainly the one that, in terms of what we've covered, we're not necessarily saying these are the key stories, but this is what we've seen and seen an impact. And coming on the back of sort of Ravi Zacharias and Bill Howells and some others, and look, you know, I've been involved in a, in a church and it's been in the news, some of that, and I'm very well aware as a trustee of what that looks like as you navigate on the other side, review processes and some of the difficulties of that. I think it's really challenged our kind of platform culture, and there's been a lot of mm. chat around that, and I think that's healthy and good to ask that question, the idea of green rooms and spaces to the side and speakers having these special privileges and and almost being detached from other environments. And as somebody, again, who speaks, you're trying to navigate some of the realities of that is it, it can be incredibly tiring. Sometimes you're just looking for a space out of the way, but once that's labeled a green room and as if it's some sort of privilege that gets that totally subverts what's going on. So you're trying to find a balance of respecting people's time and space and just their energy levels to give them a place sometimes to go. Because I'd be naive and silly if I just sat here and said, look, I've never gone to a room to the side that may or may not have been described as a green room. It's often just an environment where you can have a space before or after. If you're doing two, three services or two or three seminars at a session, you want a space where you get to compose yourself. That's something you just have to wrestle with, the realities of running events in some of these spaces. But I do think there's a, there's a real concern as to how we lead going forward. So we absolutely need to name and deal with abusive practices. There's a language question. We've wrestled with that at EA about the term spiritual abuse. Again, let's just own that. We've got a paper out there that talks about the problems of that. It's a very broad phrase. It can cover a whole variety of things. It isn't always helpful. Um, and a whole series of kind of practices from very obviously criminally abusive can be covered in that to also potentially much lower level inexperienced people who are a bit naive or haven't phrased things well could all be caught under that. And that isn't always a helpful way of engaging. And one of the things we've worked with other organizations and are thinking a little bit about is the difference between a safeguarding situation, a kind of review that involves that, a legal review, and sometimes a kind of more HR cultural review. And those can be different in different situations and they can all come together. Part of the challenge in the Pilavachi situation was that. And then to your point, Alicia, not, I just think the acknowledgement in some of these spaces hasn't been great from those who have been found to be uh, their conduct to be wanting, because uh, I'm trying to avoid the word guilt because it's not that's not what was found in these situations. Different views have found different things. But if leaders don't acknowledge their role in this, then that's it's very difficult to see any path to restoration. And obviously, again, it depends on, on what they've been found guilty of, what those paths could even possibly look like. Um, because there's an, there's another critique that Christians are f far too quick to restore and say, all right, that's all dealt with, that all's forgiven, you're back on. And I know that's not what you're saying, but I do think we have to put that caution out as well. Because um, sometimes there's an accusation, I think rightly, that Christians are are too quick to move on and say, let's restore somebody. So lots of questions think about process there. Those That's probably the biggest underlying story that church leaders are pushing back on and saying, yes, we agree that there's been harmful stuff has happened, but how do we lead? Do we have any space to lead anymore? Is anything we say going to be seen as abusive and problematic? Any kind of discipleship, any kind of reprimanding of somebody, any kind of discipline in any shape or form. Um, leaders are getting very nervous as to what's left to do. Either of you want to come in on that story before we move to our last? 
you're probably not allowed to because of time anyway. I'll have to ban <laughs> you. So yeah, you're right. Look, the Euro on Cross Section, it's a podcast from the Evangelical Alliance. It is the last one of the year. It's only appropriate that I remind you that we are a membership organization. We love that. We're excited. We're the largest and oldest organization bringing together evangelicals across the UK. We would love you to be a member. That's what allows us to do these kind of things. That's what allows us to take your voice into the corridors of power where Alyssa and Danny do often find themselves. It's not just one or two of us going in. We're going on behalf of over 20,000 members and hundreds of thousands of church members reflected in our 3,000 odd churches that are members with us. It's three pounds a month. You can sign up through the website. If you just go on the website, go join us, you become an individual member and price of a cup of coffee a month, you get to support things like this podcast if it's been beneficial to you. With that, I turn and we have to do this quickly, guys, to the domestic stories of the year. Um, Alyssa, you are first. You've got about 30 seconds to pitch your story to us. It's to do with the political and public service institutional failings towards people of colour. Two reviews, two reports, the Baroness Casey review around the Metropolitan Police, describing it as institutionally racist, sexist and homophobic. And then the other one is to do with black maternal health care and 20 years worth of research that has taken place that has basically shown that women, black women are three times more likely and Asian women 1.8 times more likely to die in pregnancy than white women. So that is my story in probably 35 seconds. Well, two big stories. Great. Look, we're going to discuss, but Danny, 30 seconds likewise to pitch your story. Um, my story is effectively the gap that we've got between the 2022 political chaos of Boris going, Liz Truss coming, and then going, Mr. Sunak coming, and then next year we're looking for an election. This year's been a waiting game. It's been lots of political posturing, lots of movement and not much action. Um, so it's been a really weird year politically. Impressive, Danny. You, sh you shocked me. I was still drinking my coffee. You did it in 30 <laughs> seconds. Brilliant. Uh, I'm going to go for conversion therapy, the gift that keeps on giving, the story that never seems to go away <laughs> since 2018. This year, we've had a number of attempts again. Scotland's looking to legislate. It's come up in the Westminster Parliament. It's now a private member's bill in the House of Lords, then a private member's bill in the House of Commons. Just this week, Kemi Badnock, the minister responsible, has been very clear that a child cannot be born in the wrong body. And in fact, attempts to change that are the new conversion therapy. So that's a story that will be more on next year. Discuss. Alessia, are you persuaded by either of the other two stories or are you holding fire? No, I'm going to hold fire. I think there are probably two stories that church members wouldn't be aware of, but are impacted of if you are particularly in an interracial relationship, had children, you know, very much your experience of the health sector uh, and its engagement with you as you and your family go for checkups, etc. And then equally with the Metropolitan Police, if you're in London, but actually if you're in a police force in any of the um, big cities within uh, the UK, your experience of policing is disproportionately different if you are a person of colour. And there are two conversations that are important, but that are impacting people within the church that sometimes there isn't much engagement on that. So I'm definitely going to hold to those two being important stories for the church to engage with uh, going forward. And on Tuesday coming, I and some others will be joining with our One People Commission and South Asian Forum for a celebration event, 10 years um, that we have been celebrating the unity and diversity of the UK Evangelical Church. Some awards going out to some people 
I'm trying to remember. I don't think I'm allowed to say. So they're surprised that the, the, the Joel Edwards Awards are good. I didn't get that wrong. Um, so we're awarding some people uh, excited to gather together um, with um, uh, Reverend Dr. Israel, who leads our One People Commission and is presenting those awards and, and helping us navigate some of these spaces. Danny, are you persuaded by either of our stories or are you holding to your chaos? I'm holding to my chaos. I think conversion therapy is significant. We're going to hear more about it in the new year. It's not gone away. Um, but to be honest, I think, yeah, we'll probably move to this in a moment. But I think my story of the year is all about next year. Well, that you've taken us seamlessly, Danny. It's like you know where we're going. Okay, next year. What's your hope or your story you're looking forward to for next year? Well, as I say, I think this year has been a lot of posturing, a lot of positioning, um, a lot of teeing up issues for uh, an election campaign that I think will either come at the start of May or in October, November. Those are the two likely windows. Um, I'm getting more and more vibes that it might be in May. Um, so I think the political parties are just setting themselves up for that campaign. Most of the political issues, most of the policy announcements we're hearing, whether it's immigration, whether it's around trans and gender identity in schools, is about positioning, certainly for the government, how they are positioning these issues to campaign on in that coming election. Um, they are doing awfully in the polls, that's just putting it bluntly, um, and they're desperately trying to find some issues where they can connect with the electorate and maybe win back a few more votes. So if I had to push you on when the election is and a, and a rough, who's going to win and by how much roughly? Oh so I think I'm going to I'm going to shift my prediction. I've been saying autumn. I'm going for the 2nd of May in line with the local elections. And I think Labour will win. Um, and I think... Well, 100 seats? Well, I think they will win a majority. And I think they will do that because they will take significant seats off the SNP in Scotland. But it'll be a small majority. 50, 60 sort of number? Uh, I think maybe 20, 30, just because of the difficult parliamentary arithmetic. You heard it here, folks. Hold them to it. Okay, Alicia, what's your, well, give, give your general election prediction first and then your if there's a different story. My goodness, prediction. Well, Danny said May the 2nd. That's partly inspired because I've been stressing about being in Japan when there could potentially be a call for election in April <laughs> next year. So I persuaded him that our planning and engagement needs to be slightly earlier. Um, yes, I agree. I think it will be an April, May time election. Uh, I agree with everything that Danny's just shared in terms of posturing. I think the, the part that is interesting that whilst the Conservative Party and particularly Rishi Sunak has a hangover in terms of previous premierships of Boris, Truss, Cameron, Theresa May. Politics of the last 13 years also will impact whatever formation, both in team and policy focus of a potential Keir Starmer-led government. He is going to have to tackle, and he's already partly spoken about immigration in a way that parts of the Labour membership don't like it's 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 moving somewhat right it's it's moving to that sense of control of borders in a very direct way he's going to be having to tackle everything in terms of the economy uh and how he goes about that so yeah i i, I see that being a huge um focus for next year but i guess my hope is is that the conversations that i've been having with church leaders and young adult leaders and christians is a real desire that there would be kingdom leaders either raised up or Christians that would engage in politics in a very constructive way during the election and beyond it. So I guess that's my hope, the potential of kingdom vision 
being taken seriously at the next general election and in the years to come. And if uh, the election is uh, April, May, and who, what's the outcome going to be? Oh, I, I do think it's a, it's a Labour majority of some sort. I wouldn't go with the numbers that Danny mentioned of whether it's 50 or 100 majority, but it would be a majority of some You're sort. going bigger, bigger than Danny though, no? Bigger, bigger. <laughs> Uh, pressure's <laughs> yeah. on on this prediction game I'm going to go for November just to just to be Thran I suppose and go for 50 plus Labour majority but I absolutely agree I mean things other things next year the Paris Olympics I only say that because I'm hoping to manage to get to it uh, there's US elections obviously coming up and we all know the impact those could have and that's possibly a, an impact on the uh, election date here because do you want to be stuck at the same time or in and around those and have them framing our election uh, and I know, Danny, you've spoken about why that's potentially a factor on pulling it forward. But I absolutely agree. Let's say hopes for next year. Um, look, it's chaos and it's it's contended and it's uh, it's contested out there. And we have said that lots on this podcast. And um, that for some is a reason for kind of pessimism and feeling overwhelmed. And I absolutely get that. And we want to acknowledge that. But at the same time, I actually think this is an incredible missional and interesting moment because our society does feel more chaotic than perhaps uh, any time I can remember. Um, there is crisis to crisis to crisis. We're in this kind of permanent state of crisis. And actually, this is a wonderful moment for us, particularly in this Advent season, to focus our attention upon this moment of waiting. So we're not rushing into it, but also the moment of the incarnation when Jesus came and was present amongst us. Isaiah 9 reminds us the government is on his shoulders. I used to always think that was the oppressive nature of that. That was the Roman government coming down on him. But actually read it in context. Remember, no, it's, it's he's bearing it and it is resting on his shoulders. So much as we all enjoy policy and political work, much as we all like to kind of engage in that, and I think we all should, we also need to remember that ultimately government rests on his shoulders. It's that way round. Uh, and in Psalm 2, we're reminded of the, the kings of this world almost being mocked by God sometimes for the things they think they have control over and the authority they think they have. And we are reminded that we have a God in heaven um, who is in charge of all things. Colossians reminds us of that too. Sitting at God's right hand on the throne, all things come under the authority of Jesus. And I am so thankful that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken in moments like this. So as we come to the end of the year, hopefully you've enjoyed our reflection on some of these stories. But I hope you're also reminded the hope that we have that is beyond uh, anything that we've seen politically, be it domestic, international, cultural, even the Christian stories. Uh, we're putting our hope somewhere else. We bless you. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful Christmas. We will see you in the new year when we return with more stories right at the intersection of faith, culture, and the news around us. Thank you for listening to Cross Section. Please do share. Please do tweet about it. Uh, rate us, review us, anything like that. And we'll see you in 2024. Be blessed. Bye. Hi. It's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.